Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. And if you want to hear more than just this highlight from the show, become a Coast Insider, and you can listen to this complete program, plus recent episodes covering amazing topics like the discovery of an ancient lost city in Honduras, secret societies that may control the world, and an update on the legendary Star Child Skull. Head on over to coasttocoastam.com and sign up for Coast Insider to start listening. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. Dr. Herbert London with us. We will take your phone calls next hour with him as we talk about worldwide issues that truly will affect us all. Herb, I assume you remember the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis? I do indeed. Would you say that this situation is more tense than it was then? I would say at least as tense. And part of the difficulty, of course, is that you do not know what Kim will do. Uh, I could not, in 1962, predict what the Russians would do, but I did believe that there was a certain kind of rationality on the other side of this equation. I'm not so sure about Kim. As I indicated before, when you're dealing with someone so erratic, it is difficult to know how he will respond. One of the reasons why this becomes maddening is largely because, as I indicated before, our intelligence community is very limited in what we know about what goes on in the Hermit Kingdom. That is one of the real problems that we're facing today. Yeah, I mean, you, you go to North Korea, you land at the airport, and they arrest you, and they uh, accuse you of all kinds of horrendous things. Like this well, and I mean, frankly, professor. And anyone in his right mind does not go to North Korea today for precisely that reason. Exactly. You would undoubtedly be arrested. But again, part of the difficulty is we are now dealing with someone who possesses nuclear weapons. How those weapons, again, would be discharged, under what circumstances, we do not really understand or know. All we know is that there is an extortion racket that has been going on for some time, and there have been rewards. One administration after another has either averted his gaze or simply said, look, they need some more food, give them the food. They need some more fuel, give them the fuel. But let's make sure that there is no nuclear weapon that is fired. Why is it that we seem to be the only country aimed at his aggression? Well, I don't think we're the only country aimed at his aggression. And I, and I, I count South Korea as part of us, basically. Well, I, again, I, if you're counting South Korea and Japan, then I would say that's probably right, in large part because, in his mind, the kind of openness that you have in the United States and the ability to attack and criticize is something that doesn't exist in a North Korea. It is a completely controlled society. His view is controlled societies are desirable, and they're controlled by him. When you talk about a society as open as ours and as open as South Korea and Japan, you're talking about very different kinds of political entities. What about some people from within North Korea who are intelligent, who do not want war, and who would probably love to have a better relationship with the West? What if they try to take him out? Is that a possibility? Well, again, one hopes for regime change. I mean, we've talked about that in Iran. We've talked about that in various places in the globe. That would be a very desirable scenario. Whether, in fact, it's possible is another matter. Who are these people? Are they willing to use their courage, their determination to oust this man? And if so, 
what are the consequences? What would it mean? Uh, again, one of the great concerns that the Chinese have is how many people are going to cross the border if, in fact, there's any form of liberalization. Mm-hmm. You've got 120,000 troops, Chinese troops at the Yalu River, largely because they are concerned about precisely this issue. So there are both internal problems and external problems. And again, one of the things we do not know, who are these people who represent, as you've indicated, an intelligent group that wants to oust Kim? Do they exist? Again, my suspicion is most of them have been either shot or poisoned or in some way imprisoned. I don't think there are too many people who fall into the category that you've just described. Oh, you, you fall asleep in one of his meetings, you might not wake up. Well, I, again, you look at what happens. You have a, a relative who's fed to the dogs because he disagrees with Kim. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable set of conditions. Uh, well, what about the half-brother at the airport? That's right. And again, in the Singapore airport, Singapore airport of all places. I mean, you talk about barbarism. This is a country that is barbaric. It is one of the backwaters on earth. But the only issue, of course, is it's a nation that possesses nuclear weapons and a strange character who could conceivably use them. Who dropped the ball there? Who let them get nukes? Again, uh, it's a variety of factors. One, I think the international community. Uh, Pakistan certainly provided some nuclear technology. The Iranians, to some degree, have done so as well. And even the Chinese have done so. The Chinese wanted to have a controlled beast. That is, uh, someone that you put out on the world stage in order to serve as a distraction. They undoubtedly did not recognize the fact that sometimes a beast is out of control. And now it is out of control, and the Chinese are trying to engage in some sort of backsliding. But it is a very, very difficult position to be in. How did this all happen? Again, the West is also responsible because we rewarded Kim and Kim, as they indicated, Kim's father and grandfather by saying, you know what, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons, so we're going to give you the things that you need. This is going to sustain your economy. If we did not do so, it is conceivable that the economy would have collapsed. It sure takes the heat off the Syrian situation, doesn't it? It does indeed. It's changed the character, of course, for global affairs, or at least in the short term. Syria is not on the front page of American newspapers. It's all North Korea. And again, I think that there is an awful lot to be concerned about, without any question. But I think it's very important to try to understand the nature of the problem that we are facing, the kind of pressure points that exist, the way in which the United States should operate. And as I indicated before, we have to think through incrementally what are the steps that are necessary before you go to war. Would you trust Kim Jong-un with nukes in, uh, if he had submarines? I don't trust him at all. I don't trust him with submarines. One of the things, however, that is, a, again, a possibility. Don't misunderstand for a moment. I'm not suggesting that this is going to happen. But Pakistan is not exactly a friend of the United States, and yet Pakistan, with nuclear weapons, has adhered to the international protocols on the way in which nuclear weapons are considered. If, in fact, Kim reaches the point where he says, you know what, the pressure is just too much, I will accept the protocols of the West, and there will be verification measures as well. I think that would do an awful lot to take the heat out of this entire crisis. Now, all this didn't just pop up, Herb. What happened during the Obama administration? Why didn't they get tough with North Korea? Well, part of the difficulty is that the Obama administration started out with a philosophical view about America's intervention in international affairs. I mean, without seeming overly critical, the foreign policy of of Mr. Obama's was neither foreign nor policy. 
It was based on the proposition that the arc of history is moving in our direction, and as a consequence, it was not necessary for America's intervention. It is a belief almost on the order of a kind of Marxist view of history that history is moving through a dialectic, and it is not necessary for us to engage in any kind of human intervention. It will all happen in time. Countries will act responsibly. Nations will be just like the United States. This was what was meant by leading from behind where the president was saying the United States doesn't have to be out front directing policies across the globe. That was the view of the Obama administration. But the problem with it is that it created a vacuum in international affairs, including a vacuum in Asia. That vacuum was filled, as all vacuums are, by very often by rather unpleasant actors. And when we see ourselves in a situation where the unpleasant actors, whether they're Iran or Russia or China or the ISIS, but they are going to fill that vacuum. There is no such thing as a vacuum in nature and no such thing as a vacuum in international affairs. So in my judgment, there was a kind of naivete associated with the Obama position on foreign policy that accounts in no small part for the difficulties that the Trump administration is facing today. There seems to be some unrest in China, but they seem to quell it pretty quickly, don't they? Well, the, the Chinese, of course, is on, they're also a controlled society, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the economy has worked reasonably well and 300 million people have been taken out of poverty into some sort of middle class, which is an extraordinary achievement. But it's a completely controlled society. If you're not a member of the party, the advantages that are given to you, economic advantages, are very limited. So, again, China is not the kind of society that, you know, you might describe as Western liberalism. It is not. It is a very different kind of organization, a different kind of state. Will the Chinese evolve into something resembling Western liberalism? Possibly. But at the moment, that is certainly not the case. How many people are controlling China? I had heard... Maybe 75 people there are controlling the destiny of that country. They're very wealthy. They're getting the lion's share of the money. They pay off their military, and they keep control that way. I think that's probably right. I mean, I've heard the number as low as 50 and as much as 200. But there is no doubt it's a relatively small number of Chinese that actually dictate affairs in the country. And Xi, I think, is a a different kind of leader in a way. He is tough-minded. He is very smart. He understands what's necessary. But more importantly, he understands his loyalty to the party and why it's essential that it be be maintained. He seems very organized and uh, very disciplined. He is indeed. And, and that is what you see on the world stage and even what you see within China. Keep in mind that he's engaged in all the anti-corruption activities within China, which has done an awful lot to alarm people in that country. Look, if you're a mid-level bureaucrat in China and you're engaged in the development of some sort of housing project in Shanghai, and someone says to you, you know what, you're earning 10000 the equivalent of $10,000 a year. I'm going to give you $50,000 a year, but here's the kind of deal that I want. Boy, there's an incentive to move ahead and think about the, uh, the kind of corruption or rewards that you would get as a consequence. This has made China into very much of a corrupt state. People do not recognize that, but it is very much a part of the way the Chinese operate today. And they've got money. I mean, if you've ever been to Las Vegas or Los Angeles, uh, the people from China, uh, and I don't think they're just average citizens, Herb, they're spending a lot of money. Well, you go to places like Macau, a kind of gambling capital of the world, 
and you will see that all of the, the gambling that's going on and the extraordinary sums that are being exchanged, some of that money is being laundered. But there is no doubt about the extraordinary wealth that has arisen in a relatively short period of time. Keep in mind that when we talk about the revolution that occurred in China with Mao in the 1940s, we're talking about a country that was an absolute backwater. There was nothing in China. It had one of the lowest standards of living in the world. And here you now have the Chinese, more than a billion people, with 300 million who have entered the ranks of the middle class. It's remarkable. I was in Europe last week, and wherever you go, I mean, whether it's in, uh, in Rome or you, you spend some time in, in Livorno, anywhere I was in Italy or in Corsica or Malta, here are the Chinese, and they're spending, spending big time, standing in front of the Prada store, can't wait to get in, <laughs> buying up as much as they can. I mean, it, it's extraordinary and wonderful in many ways but it demonstrates something about the tremendous change that has occurred in a relatively short period of time. And they're buying up property in here, Vancouver, Canada, all over the planet. That's correct. No, no, no question. The, the Chinese now have a vision of a Silk Road. That Silk Road would lead to the tremendous commercial domination across the globe, with the Chinese now saying, look, we've got a plan. We've got a very clear plan. And that plan is this kind of commercial domination. We in the West do not. We rely more on a kind of ad hoc view of foreign policy as well as the, uh, the kind of economic policy for the future. The Chinese have a clear, well-developed understanding of what they want to achieve yep. and a strategy that goes along with it. And they have patience. They have the patience to do it, Herb. We don't well, as they Americans. The patience, they have the money. You're absolutely correct. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.